So currently there's 300 million users of crypto worldwide. It's growing at 185% a year. So that means by next year, you're at 700 million people. Wow. And then the year after that, you're at a billion and a half people. everybody, you're listening to Chatting with Candice. I'm your host, Candice Horbath. Before we jump into this week's episode, we're going to do some shout outs really quick. So I wanted to say thank you to John B for all of those cups of coffee. And thank you so much, Wesley, for all of those coffees. I really appreciate it. And all of those resources go directly back into podcasting for advertising and um, production value. So thank you so much. I couldn't do this without all of your support. So this week I am really excited and nervous. Uh, This is another episode in what I'm calling our crypto series. I have the one and only Raul Paul joining the podcast. And if you don't know who he is, he's a former hedge fund manager. He's the co-founder of Real Vision, which is a financial media company. And they offer in-depth video interviews with some of the biggest names in the world when it comes to investing. So a lot of amazing resources there. He is one of the most prominent voices right now when it comes to the Web3 and crypto space. So we are all very lucky to have this amount of time with him. So please help me welcome, without further ado, Raul Paul. Well, I first want to start off by just saying thank you so much for joining this podcast, Raul. Like I know you are in extreme demand and you're one of the most prominent voices, I think, in this space right now. So um, I just want to start off by saying like I'm very lucky to have you here and so are my listeners. So thank you. It's great to be here. Really looking forward to this. So for people that maybe don't know you or your background, do you want to give like a little bit of an intro into your history um, and your expertise? Sure. So my background was finance. So I'm 30 odd years in the financial industry. Back in the 90s, I was at Goldman Sachs, where I ran a big business there. Then I ran a hedge fund in London for one of the largest hedge fund firms in the world doing macro investing, which is investing in currencies, commodities, stock markets, you know, all around the world, all sorts of stuff. And then eventually opted out of the rat race, moved to the Mediterranean coast of Spain, and started writing um, macroeconomic research and investment strategy for the world's biggest hedge funds, uh, family offices, pension funds, that kind of stuff. Um, I was in Spain during the financial crisis uh, in 2008, and then the European crisis when we almost lost our entire banking system there in 2012. And that set me on two separate journeys. Uh, I, I realized that those of us at the center of the financial system knew everything. We also knew the financial system was totally broken. And I thought people would come up to me and say, well, why didn't we know? I was one of the people who predicted both of those events. You know, the people in the film, The Big Short, were all clients of mine. And I'm, I sat really uncomfortably with me. It's like, why do some people know and others don't? And how can I change that? So the two journeys I went on, uh, one was I started Real Vision, the financial media business I run now, um, which is a kind of long form video where we give people access to the most ridiculous people in in the whole financial world. The um, And that's been a, an amazing journey. The other journey was my crypto journey that started at the same time. So I get, went, went around the world trying to start the world's safest bank with a bunch of these kind of wealthy family offices. And it's a slightly hubristic thing to do to think I can go and start the world's safest bank, but I thought I'd give it a go. Uh, and it proved pretty hard. You know, we went to Singapore, Switzerland, the US, all over the place trying to do this. And somebody, one of my clients, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, one of the answers to the entire financial system is Bitcoin. And this was 2012. uh, And I started doing the work on it. And I first invested in it in 2013 and probably wrote the first ever piece on it. Um, The kind of macroeconomic analysis of Bitcoin uh, and where it could go and how to value it. Uh, And then cut forward that journey is that those two journeys combined uh, when we launched Real Vision, I think the first video I ever produced was about the role Bitcoin will play in the future financial system. That was 2014. And I kind of been part of that mission ever since is A, the system's broken, B, people need to know about it, and C, here's your solution. So that that's what I've been doing. Well, it sounds incredible. I 
feel like I'm late to the party a little bit. It took me a while, I guess, to find interest and like true curiosity in what's happening. And the more that I dive in and the more that I learn, it just seems kind of like the new version of like the Oregon Trail, (laughs) which is like we're all pioneering and there's some risk. There's a lot of uncertainty, but the amount of this new version of freedom that kind of comes along with it as well as like financial opportunity just seems like I don't want to miss that. So I'm trying to learn as much as possible and just try to spread that information as best I can. We're all on that same journey. So if anybody tells you they know what's going on or where it's going, they're lying. We don't. It's all new. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's the fastest adoption of any technology in all human history. So the internet was previously the fastest adoption of any technology. This is growing at twice the speed. So currently, there's 300 million users of crypto worldwide. It's growing at 185% a year. So that means by next year, you're at 700 million people. And then the year after that, you're at a billion and a half people. So what's amazing about it is, yes, it's amazing the technology and Web3 and all of the power it gives back to the individuals and all of the great stuff. But the big difference here is by owning the tokens, you're being part of the network as well. So you you can not only get the benefits of this new system in a social sense, but you get it in an economic sense too, because it goes up in value. It's like like finding Facebook back in 2010 and being given shares in Facebook that everybody who used Facebook had shares. It would have made everybody rich. Mm -hmm. This is what this is doing, because you get the utility of all of this and you get the financial benefits. Yeah, and I think a lot of hesitation for people that maybe haven't adopted it yet is is just ignorance, right? And we kind of run away from things that we don't know because we don't want to look stupid. So that's why I'm here is to look stupid for everybody, for my audience, and just to learn. Um, but I think it starts with understanding like what is money. And I've heard you talk a little bit about this when it comes to um, like currency debasement because – what I was always taught was you just put you save money. You just put it into an account and you watch that number get bigger. And then hopefully whenever the day comes, if it comes that you don't want to work, that that number will support you for the rest of your later years. And then the more that I'm learning, I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like a very solid plan. And that's also not risk-free. Like everything comes with risk. So I would love if you could kind of explain, um, I guess, like currency debasement and why maybe investing is a better idea than just hoarding your money in a savings account? Yeah. So the I think the best example to use is for the millennial generation. So anybody's kind of under the age of 35, say 25 to 35. So most millennials are now in their early 30s. And in their early 30s, they look at the world and they look at their income and you can't buy a house. Mm-hmm. And the stock market is expensive It's at all-time record valuations and the bond market. And all of the investment world is incredibly expensive. And so you're stuck where, okay, you start saving a few hundred dollars a month. The problem is, is there's no interest rates on your money. So it it doesn't grow. But meanwhile, the cost of everything goes up more. So you're actually getting poorer. So you have to save more and more money. And it becomes almost impossible. So what is the factors playing out here? Why is this becoming so difficult? Well, we used to have higher interest rates, but because of this huge baby boom population who are retiring, plus the amount of debt in the system, interest rates have fallen for three, four decades now to now zero. So nobody gets any interest on their money, but we still have inflation. So the normal cost of goods normally has been running at like 2% a year. Doesn't sound a lot, but over time, you know, over a 10-year period, that ends up being 30% or or so of your money, that your purchasing power that you've lost. So unless your income goes up or you save more and more and more every year, you're kind of behind the game. Mm. But then there's a bigger thing. So right now we're seeing high, high inflation. We're seeing inflation at, you know, 8%. So then you're really behind the game unless your salary goes up enough and you can start saving more. So everyone's behind the game. But then there's another crazy thing happened. When interest rates hit zero and we got to 2008, that famous financial crisis, 
the central banks started using something like the Federal Reserve being the central bank of the United States, started using a different way of trying to stimulate economic growth and save the banking system. And that was called quantitative easing, which is a fancy word to say, we're going to print more money. And when you print more money, you devalue the money. So to put it in layman's terms, if you are really thirsty and somebody says, well, I've got a bottle of water, I'll sell it to you for $5, you'll pay $5. Mm-hmm. If somebody gives you a million bottles, it's worth nothing to you. In fact, you pay somebody to get rid of it because <laughs> it's cluttered up your entire house. So things that are, if there's too much of something, it becomes valueless or less valuable. Mm-hmm. So one Mona Lisa is valuable, a million Mona Lisas, not valuable. And that's what's going on with money. They're debasing it, which means that they are lowering the value. Now, you don't see it very easily. All you see is that these asset prices keep going up. Every time they do this quantitative easing magic, the price of the stock market goes up, and the price of housing goes up, and the price of crypto goes up. And everyone's like, well, I can buy less of it now suddenly, but my income hasn't gone up. That's debasement. So you're now poorer and you didn't realize how it happened and you don't understand it. And it makes people angry because they don't understand why they can't get ahead. You know, wages over the last 50, 60 years haven't gone up. And the reason being is the millennials are in the workforce with their parents. So you've got the two biggest cohorts of people ever competing for jobs. And then there's globalization, i.e. Chinese workers and Indian workers and Mexican workers. And, and then you've got technology. You've got to beat the robots and the AI who are taking everybody's jobs. So wages don't go up very much, but the cost of all these assets keeps going up because people are devaluing the dollar. So that's why it's so hard to get ahead. And that forced me to look at, okay, how do we get around this? What can we do that's more sensible than what we were told? Because our Parents were all told, save money, but they, were, they had 7%, 8% interest rates. So it, it adds up pretty quick. But this doesn't work. So what I did is I started looking at all of these assets and dividing them by the size of the central bank balance sheet. So how many, you know, how, how, basically how much the, 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 the Fed have printed. And what you found is the stock market didn't really do much. The normal, the S&P 500. The property market didn't do much. So they were just basically keeping in line with what was going on. So they protected your money, but you didn't make money. You didn't get richer. But when you looked at two things, they were the only things that made the real difference. One was technology stocks, because we live in this technological age of incredible change. And so those things tend to do well. But the thing that beat them all was crypto. Crypto did extraordinarily well because what you've got is some forces at play. One is there's digital scarcity, so you can't print more of it. So if something is being printed more of, it goes up in value versus a thing being printed. So that's great. But the blockchain technology was like a call option on the future financial system and the future of the internet. So you've got something that looks like a tech stock with adoption and has the safety of, let's say, gold. So that became like the holy grail. And then, you know, the speed of adoption, everything else is what's driven the price rises. So that's why crypto has been such a good savings vehicle. I made a, um, a video on this several years ago that's probably had three or four million views now on YouTube um, about the retirement crisis. And back then, I probably did this in 2015 or so. I said, you know, if you are a 30-year-old, your answer is to start saving in crypto because that is the big opportunity, because the upside is so much larger. So yeah, that's the only way I see it that you can get ahead. Or start your own business is the other way. Right. Yeah. And that's so interesting, because a lot of the critics when it comes to crypto kind of make it seem like it's um, this giant scam that just hasn't revealed itself yet. But like you said, if you look at what is um, what is growing and what seems to be, I guess, like the safer bet when it comes to investing, you can't really deny you can't deny Bitcoin, right? Or like Ethereum as of late. So when it comes to those two coins, because I feel like those are the most popular ones right now, can you kind of get into like the main differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum as far as like usage and application? 
Yeah, so Bitcoin is still the big daddy of the space, mm-hmm. and it, it's the OG. Uh, it was the first one to launch. Now, Bitcoin has some very unique attributes, which is that it is you know got this very restricted, understandable, knowable, non-changeable supply. Mm-hmm. So you know how many Bitcoin are going to come onto the market every year, and when that stops, when we get to twenty-one million. Mm-hmm. It's also the way it's constructed is is um, a proof of work mechanism, which means that there's lots of computers around the world, Bitcoin miners they're called, who have to solve this complicated algorithm, and it's expensive. You need huge computing power, and that network of miners basically protects the network. So there's not a single person that validates everything. It's all of these people. So Bitcoin is incredibly secure and robust. So for a system of money, meaning for savings or collateral or things you borrow and lend against, it's amazing because it's it's so understandable, knowable, definable. It is slow because it requires all of this computing power and expensive to do things on. So it has not been used as the kind of applications layer. It's kind of the base layer of the money system, the new digital money system. Ethereum comes along and it does something uniquely different. It has, it's, it didn't set out to be money. Well, Bitcoin set out to be money in some respects. It set out to be an applications layer, a platform of which we could build on blockchain technology. And its piece of magic was something called the smart contract. So Bitcoin, there is no nothing smart in it. In fact, it's pretty dumb. It just does what it does, which is why it's so perfect. But Ethereum said, well, if we can make contracts code, then almost anything in life is a contract. Me coming on your podcast is essentially a verbal or written contract over email, right? Almost everything in life is a contract. So therefore, if we can record all of these contracts and make them transferable in this new world, then we've created the whole applications layer for money, the internet of value, and everything else. So Bitcoin is more single-use case specific, but very powerful in what it does. Ethereum is like the whole internet. So it's a much broader thing. And so that so they, they're very different. And people try and compare them and say, you know, well, one's not the other. And they're not supposed to be. They're both amazing in their own way. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to these smart contracts, how does that specifically or how do you see it affecting like creators and artists in the future? Like is because to me, anyone that's supposed to be getting money off of royalties, for example, and maybe they're not, or if you take more of like a predatory in- industry like the music industry, where the artists have kind of um fallen victim to like these large companies, like do you see do you see like Ethereum being a solution to some of those common problems? The smart contract is the solution. Mm -hmm. So what you're able to do is you're able to have a direct relationship. This is what you're hearing the buzzwords Web3. This is what Web3 is all about. You can have a direct relationship with your community. So you've got a community around your podcast. Mm -hmm. Now, where do you communicate with them? Maybe it's on Twitter. Maybe it's on Instagram. Maybe it's wherever it is. But you don't own that relationship, really. And they get monetized by being on that platform by other people. Now, in this world, you could have your own Candice token where that unlocks the benefits of being in your world and you now have a direct relationship with the people in your community. And they will start, if they now have this investment where culture has become an investment, they want to hang around your culture, what you're building, um, and they're aligned with you, they want you to succeed because their tokens will go up in value if, if the network thrives, if your community thrives. So they're going to help promote you, do all the things for you. So now you've got a much healthier relationship with your audience and you don't need a marketing middleman as much. You don't need to pay for promotion as much. You don't need to do all sorts of things as much, but that's just the start. If you're a music artist, well, right now you have to put your music on Spotify and they give you a very small few cents for millions of of downloads. But in this case, you can find your true fans, issue an NFT that gives them either the music itself or some rights to the music or an ability to get the music earlier, whatever you choose. And you're giving your fans now benefit, direct economic benefit, and they will pay for that. And what you're now not doing is using Facebook or Google or anybody else in the middle. You're doing 
you're, you've got this direct relationship. You're you're fulfilling your fans' needs. You are building the needs of the community, and you're trying to all add value together. And that works at so many levels in music. Tickets. So ticket prices, what you and I pay when we go to a concert, is not really reflective of the costs because there are so many middlemen, whether it's scalpers or whether it's you know Ticketmaster themselves, whether it's the venues. Well, if tickets are NFTs, then they become savable. Like I've still got my ticket from Live Aid in 1985. It was like one of the great events of my life and I've got my ticket. But if I have that on a blockchain, it's proven that it's mine and I can sell it to you because you want to buy it from me. Or that community could have thrived for the next 30 years for anybody who held the ticket to say, I was there. And then, you know, maybe we get discounts to other events. Maybe we get, you know, all of the artists who are there want to bring us in their communities. So tickets become an obvious thing that go on the blockchain. Music IP goes on the blockchain. Artwork goes on the blockchain. Um, it can be pretty much anything. Now, a lot of it is still restricted by, so video will go there as well. So whole movies can go that way. Right now, you can't actually put a movie itself on the blockchain. So you have to kind of point to a location of that movie on a blockchain. But technology is moving forward incredibly fast. So basically, this is the entire rails for everything, everything that we do. Every relationship that we have, every financial relationship or relationship of value or connection with the communities that we exist in are all going to blockchain. Mm. Oh, man. So I have a question um, regarding, I guess, like the life cycle of a creator or an artist. So if you're trying to get involved in this Web3 space and and figure out how to monetize your community – like what are like the ethical ways to do it and then maybe the not so ethical ways because I've seen and I know that there are some people say NFTs are no fucking things. Like that's what people are <laughs> like the opponents of of the technology because they see these rug pulls. Um, I think one of the more famous ones was like the Squid Games NFT that went belly up and then you had this whole community of people that just got scammed. So I guess like the ethical life cycle of a creator to monetize that and then as the consumer or the fan, like what are some key points to look at to, I guess, invest wisely? As with every contract that you have is do you trust that person? Right. Who was behind the Squid Games thing? No, we, you know, you didn't know. You didn't have a relationship. So people were just looking, oh, this looks like a cool idea. I'm going to throw money at it. Difference is, if you say, I'm going to create a series of a thousand NFTs for my true fans and I'm going to give them to you. And those first thousand true fans, anybody who owns that NFT is going to get a bunch of stuff. You know, I'm going to have meet and greets. I'm going to release some special content. I'm going to, you know, have, you know, Zoom calls with you. Okay, now those things have value. You've not monetized anything. You've given it to people. Okay, that's a first good start. Okay. Because you can monetize later. Because then once you've got these true fans, the NFTs now have value. Maybe other people want to join the community. So maybe you say, well, the actual size of this is 10,000, but I've given them the first thousand out. Now suddenly the market will set a price because people will want, if you, if you prove that you're going to add value to the community, then then those NFTs will have a value. And suddenly, before you know it, they're trading at $1,000. So now you can sell more of the NFTs to give other people access. But again, you have to keep proving that you're adding value, that it's not just an idea. Or like a money it's grab. That, no, it needs to be a utility that we're in this together. We're trying to build something between community member and influencer or artist. Once you do that, once you see that, you know it's genuine. Does it mean it's going to work? No. You know, it, it depends whether the community grows and the benefits are good and it catches on, enough people hear about it. But that's generally how it should be done. Anybody who's just launching something because it's meme, sure, if you feel like speculating with a few bucks doing it because it's fun, by all means. But that's not a that's not Web3. That's just fun speculation. Web3 is this symbiotic relationship between the creator and the fan. 
Yeah, and that makes me really excited because you're getting rid of like these mega the need for these mega corporations and you're putting the value where I think it should have been this whole time, which is in the creator, within the artist and within within the community. And I've actually seen some like pretty prominent um, public figures that tried launching NFTs um, and like social tokens. And for some reason or another, it just like didn't do as well as they had anticipated. And they got ahead of it and they were like, you know what? This isn't what I wanted and I'm still learning too. So if you want, like here's a refund. And if you want to hold, then you can hold and we're in this together. And then I've seen the opposite, which is like, well, it's an investment and they're risky. So I'll take my cash and leave. And to me, I'm like, why would you do that? Because you just killed your brand and you killed all trust and you can't come back from that. Well, this is why I love this because in the end, it means those that look after their communities can grow the value of their communities. Mm -hmm. Those that destroy them can't. So what happens is the communities who look after each other are vibrant and the other ones just fail because as you've said, you've trashed your brand so nobody trusts you. You've broken that circle of trust and so in which case your ability to grow in this Web3 world has gone down. So it actually polices bad actors versus good actors and what happens is is people get attracted to places where you see that they're doing a good job. You know, a great example of this is Board Ape Yacht Club. At first, everyone's like, why the hell, monkey JPEGs, who cares? This is stupid. But then they realized that they built a real robust community and then people were building on top of it because they, they allowed the IP rights to be part of the, of the smart contract. So that meant that people like Timbaland, the music producer, could build Ape in Productions, which is four apes, Board Apes, and he's built music around it, and he's created a record label with NFTs. So now you've created an ecosystem, and Animoco Brands is is creating a game around it. And then eventually they dropped the ape token, which was a because the apes were too expensive for a large community, but they were the statement of intent. This is like this is what our community stands for. We want people to build amazing stuff. We want to be a kind of a culture media brand. And then the ape token meant that millions of people can now participate in that. That's really clever. I didn't know. See, I'm still learning about the board apes and I'm still kind of on the fence of like, I don't understand why this JPEG is so... Ex- I wrote a um, a big tweet thread on this and it's also a Substack. So look my name on Substack. And I wrote that because I just bought it, uh, my board ape, only a couple of weeks ago. And I explained why and what Yuga Labs is up to, what this all means, how it all relates. So it's not a... It's not a kind of idiot's guide to NFTs. It's an idiot's guide to how Web3 works and why this matters. No, I'll definitely check that out. And honestly, I think the work that you're doing is so incredible, especially with Real Vision and um, as you've put it, like the democratization of information, because I think The Big Short was one of, it's one of my favorite movies. I've (laughs) seen it a hundred times. And every time I'm like, how did no one know? Like, how come this information isn't just out there? So the fact that you're podcasting so much and you're giving away so much information for free, and then obviously there is some stuff behind a paywall, I think is incredible. Yeah, and look, I'm just passionate about it. I'm passionate about, you know, using what I've learned in my career, and I've been very privileged in the position I've been in, to let other people take advantage of it themselves. I can see the system's broken. I see people are angry, and I can see we're driving populism, splintering people left and right for no reason, but people are just looking to blame somebody for why they're in this mess. So we can talk all day about who's to blame or why it happened. The reality is it is. Mm-hmm. So then it's about, okay, what is the solution? And the solution is here. It's this Web3 world. It's crypto. It's digital assets. It's This is where the potential is for all of us to leave that past behind. So yeah, I, I'm so passionate about just helping people understand what this is all about. Right. And it's such a, it's a much more positive take on um, a solution when it comes to like wealth disparity or inequality of wealth or distribution, which a lot of people are talking about. It's instead of trying to take from people that have, it's this abundant way of looking at it. And it's like, no, you don't have to do that because there is so much out there and you too can be abundant and just create more wealth. Like it doesn't have to be this finite game. And also what's really interesting, it is both very left-wing and very right-wing in what it does, right-wing in terms of economics. So it is pure free market capitalism. 
yet it's very progressive because it's all about community and how you treat the others around you and how you support that community. Now, this is the this is bizarre because everybody else is still throwing mud at each other about you know left versus right, and here is a solution where politics doesn't really get into it much. It does at Bitcoin level a bit, but outside of that, it's completely the opposite. So I love the fact here we've got free market capitalism and progressive values where society matters altogether. And nobody gets penalized for it either. You know, there's the taxation, the, the method of taxation or whatever is, is, is egalitarian. So everybody pays their fees by using the blockchain. And that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like a really beautiful thing. I would say when it comes to like the politics of crypto and this emerging technology, um, a lot of people are attracted to it because it's being called like this censorship resistant um, financial tool or investment. But so recently with Canada and Coinbase specifically, we saw them kind of doing something that to me seemed against the whole like ethos and the whole point of crypto and web3 which is kind of that anonymity and sovereignty that comes with it so it's like anything over $1000 you have to like fully disclose both parties and it's being traced and all of that I have a different view on all of this Sure yeah Go to the bank take out 10000 bucks they ask you where it's going mm-hmm. and who it's for Right in cash mm-hmm. Right so you can't use cash to do a lot of stuff because it is monitored. If you're going to try and put a large amount of money, if you're going to use cash to buy a house, they're going to ask you, KYC, AML, that's been in place forever. So all of us use credit cards, all of us uh, on Twitter, using Google, on Instagram, every single thing that we do is being monitored by, by numerous parties. And our money is already being monitored and we're restricted in cash. So it is what it is. Um, again, you know, you can, we can fight against it, but we need to find in this world a space for government too. Because if we try and throw out government, then they're going to fight us. And we've got a bigger fight on our hands. The best thing is to work with them, allow the adoption to happen, and then it becomes so powerful that there's nothing they can do about it. But if you try and have the fight too early, they do what they did in Canada, which is they force people to act in certain ways. But once it's too big, they can't. So, you know, and some people come at this with different philosophies. You know, some people are freedom absolutists and privacy absolutists. But they will tell you that on Twitter and on their Instagram account. And all of that is being monitored, recorded, everything. So, you know, it's kind of slightly crazy because that doesn't exist in the world. And, you know, people talk about, well, they're going to know where our money goes. They know every single payment you have ever made in your entire lifetime. And the government can request it in seconds, as can other third parties from your bank. So, you know, what what are we hiding from? Now, the movement of money, this gives us a chance of having more ability to escape bad regimes, you know, if the government is oppressive. It gives you that ability but it's far from guaranteed, much like gold gives you that ability, but it's far from guaranteed. So it's better at the margin, but everything on a blockchain is recorded and everybody can track everything, which is why every time anything, a big scam happens, the FBI and NSA track it down almost instantaneously. So I guess there's not really reason to be concerned as far as like keeping your which wallet you use whether it's coinbase or whether you you have like a cold storage as far as i guess government regulation goes or because that's another conversation too right is regulation and does the community want it what does that look like um and i guess like what are the like consequences of that yeah so so in 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 terms of wallets there's nothing we can do about that but wallets you know having a cold storage wallet makes yours more secure and the ability for you to cross borders so let's say you don't like the government you're in let's say you're living in russia or you're in ukraine and you have to leave well your wealth becomes instantly transportable so that is a beauty of this system in terms of regulation There's going to be some sort of grand compromise, but what we're learning is that the more people adopt this before the regulation happens, the more voters they have to fight against if they're going to be hard on it. Mm. And 
particularly because of the demographic, it's this big millennial group that's the, the, the big users of this. These are voters who were not really big voters, but now they've got an issue that they would vote for because they have participated in this whole ecosystem. So I think we're going to see a lot of pushback on, on excess regulation. There'll be some regulation. That's fine. That's the compromise we will have to reach. But we will push back against bad regulation, reg- regulation that makes it restrictive. You know, Canada did what it did probably because it was still early in the adoption that massive numbers of voters couldn't say, fuck you. Mm-hmm. And so over time, it becomes harder to do. Although we saw that China did it. I mean, they're just huge numbers of users. They just said, sorry, you can't use this any longer. Right. And I think that's the terrifying thing because it's like, well, what happens if you, that do, if that crackdown does happen? So if you store on a cold storage wallet, what we saw is a bunch of Chinese going to Singapore, setting up accounts in Singapore, and they've got their, their crypto. So oh, there you, go. You, know, you still got it. And it's pretty difficult once you leave the borders for you to be stop being used unless you're tracked down for you know, criminal offences, in which case, you know, Interpol and the other kind of globalised way of dealing with, with crime kicks into place. But if you're a, just an individual, you're free. Right. And then that's also been one of the talking points from the people that are um, pro-regulation is that it's, you know, it's just rampant with all of this criminal activity and they're just trying to keep the consumer safe, which I've heard is kind of debunked. Like there, that's not really true, that there's still way more criminal behavior with fiat currency than with cryptocurrency. And then also it's like, well, if you really cared about the users or the consumer's finances, like you can go up to your eyeballs in student debt and no one really cares about that. Or you can have 20 credit cards and no one cares about that. So I'm really not convinced that you care about my financial well-being because there's all of these other indicators that say otherwise. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a sham. And it's disgraceful that, you know, you can go to Vegas, blow all your paycheck, but you can't buy a token. It's it's ludicrous. Or you can't invest in a VC. All you need is to tell people, this is risky. You can use, lose your money. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of ways you can lose your money. But yes, to, to, to think it's acceptable for students to have, you know, $100,000, $150,000 of debt, it's, it's crazy. And then not give them a chance to make that money back. It's wrong. And it's not just at cryptocurrency level. It's at all investment level. What it does is perpetuates middlemen. You, you're not smart enough or rich enough to do this. So you have to come to me and I will help you do this. And I will charge you a layer of fees to make it possible. That's why it doesn't go away. There's too much vested interest by the financial industry. But, you know, it's wrong. It's morally wrong. It's, it's doing the opposite. It's, it's perpetuating the rich-poor divide. It's lowering the opportunity set for people who are either younger or less well off. And it's not fair. It has to change. So because you came from that industry, do you have old colleagues or old people from that space that are like, what are you doing? You're giving out all of our secrets? No. Most people in financial markets are just smart people who love, generally who who love to look at the world and look and assess change and opportunities. And most of them start to see this as a change and an opportunity. I mean, there's not people, most people aren't going around saying, well, we need to stop this. These guys are coming after our jobs. They're like, oh shit, this is happening. I need to get into this because if not, I'm not going to have a job, but this is amazing. There are more senior people in the industry at the very top who don't like it because they it's their business that's being threatened. But every day I see that changing. Every day, you know, I recently gave a talk um, and Jamie Dimon was in the front row, who's the head of of JP Morgan and was a very anti-Bitcoin person. He was taking notes at the front, leaning (laughs) forward, taking notes. Mm -hmm. So the world is changing and people are changing and people are understanding so we're seeing the investment banks like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan adopting this. Um, people are saying it's inevitable. So I think that attitude from the financial system, from the kind of old guard, is slowly going. Because they're also seeing a brain drain of people just leaving the industry, saying we're going to this new parallel future, and it's more exciting. And then the people who've moved, made the move, people like Mike Novogratz and Dan Moorhead and all these guys, have become extremely rich doing it. 
richer than you know the people who are in the financial system so it's like they figure it out fast yeah it seems like with any major disruption to any industry you kind of have two choices which is either adopt it and learn or you can hold on to your old ways and die and like it makes me think because we've been watching super pumped but it makes me think of like that transition from taxi cabs to ubers and i remember during the beginning of it i, I was waiting on like a busy corner where cabs would like normally stop or at an airport and i'd be waiting looking at my phone waiting for my car and a taxi cab would come up and they'd be like oh do you need a ride i'm like no i have an uber and you would just get reamed at by this cab driver like you're killing our industry you're taking my job and like just very a lot of anger and like heels digging in because they didn't want to just adopt this inevitable change um they were just trying to like fight and die to keep keep the old ways yeah i'm mean, look it's really hard for people right now because there is so much change we've got the system of money changing how we transfer store value around the world in ways that most people can't comprehend you know your mum's going to be scratching her head going i don't understand this nfts what is this <laughs> this is all right because it's fear of change she knows her checkbook and she knows her credit card and she knows you know that you know whatever certain things that she cherishes have value she can't get it okay fine but that's happening at every level from ai to data sciences to biotechnologies to um uh evs and green energy to um cryptocurrencies i mean it's happening at scale robotics space it's all <laughs> happening at a speed of which humans have never gone through before i call it the exponential age it's the fastest period of change we will that mankind has ever lived through and we're right at the epicenter when all of these things are going exponential i mean just look at the number of electric cars from 10 years ago and where it's and where it'll be in another 10 years will be five times where it is here or 10 times um same with the number of satellites going to space where it's now cheap for a you know even a university to chuck up a satellite to monitor climate change or you know ai how things like shopify have made it at scale available for people to have recommendations for stuff stuff that you know you and i could never do you know because you have to be a developer you have to find the right team but it's now happening at scale and factories are just robots now you know they're, they're not humans it's scary it is scary and it's very hard to keep up and it can make you very dizzy if you try to so i guess when it comes because you, i feel like one of your things that you're known for is just like accurately predicting a lot of stuff um ahead of time like you have a very good track record so when it comes to the future of Bitcoin and maybe we'll say like the lightning network and the future of Ethereum, like where do you see that going in 10 years? So Bitcoin itself, I think the next phase for Bitcoin is being used as a long-term investment asset for, let's say there's these things called sovereign wealth funds and they're generally countries that have stuff like oil that's going to run out eventually, what they do is save some of the excess money that they make for the future of the country. They're called sovereign wealth funds. Abu Dhabi have them. Singapore has them for different reasons. A whole bunch of these countries. Those people are starting to wake up and say, this is a great asset for our future population's wealth. So they buy it and own it. So that's a trend that will happen. We will see some countries, smaller countries, that have problems with their currencies holding it in their reserves. And we will see borrowing and lending layers like we're seeing with Luna right now using the collateral of Bitcoin for their stablecoin. So that's what I think about Bitcoin. It'll be that kind of pure vehicle for long-term savings and wealth holding. And that'd be for governments, countries, corporations, people. So the lightning layer allows us to transfer money quickly around is that any better or different than using other ones i think in 10 years time we'll have this conversation you and i will be using all sorts of applications of which we won't even know or care what blockchain they're on and they'll probably go across six different blockchains we don't care much like i don't know what computer you're using i don't know what internet provider you're on what modem you're using i don't know what software you're running nothing doesn't matter it's called interoperability you know, where this works now. Digitally, we can connect with each other 
seamlessly without knowing anything about the underlying. So why should we care about what blockchain it is? Yes, we can invest in them, much like you could invest in Cisco router that you may be using. It's They're just different things. So, so I think that Bitcoin over time is, in 10 years' time, it's probably a, you know, $50 trillion asset or so. So that's, a, you know, 50x from here. Maybe it's less, maybe it's $20 trillion. But the whole space, well, it's going to be $200 trillion. And it's currently $200 trillion now as all of these different things get built out across uh, all sorts of different ecosystems. And they all start interrelating and being interoperable with each other. So I guess when we're talking long-term, I wanted to also touch on what people call is like the volatility. So people get really nervous and I wrote it down. Let me see where the technical terms are. Again, I'm a learner and I'm here to look stupid for everybody else. Um, We're all learning, as I said. Don't worry. It is. I'm just going to ask because I can't find it on my notepad. But it was like the difference between like day trading with Bitcoin and like seeing like trying to get out before a dip and then trying to buy um, before a spike, right? And just like making those kind of gambling bets versus dollar cost average. So there are some people that I've seen who are really skilled at buying and selling stuff short term. It is really bloody hard. I hardly know anybody at all of the world's most famous hedge fund managers who use that strategy that that really made wealth. There are some. The real wealth is made by spotting something that is got a long-term secular trend ahead of it and investing in that and then not doing anything but just keep investing in that one theme. So in this case, let's say it's Bitcoin and Ethereum. We've talked about the role they both will play. So in 10 years' time, the probability of these being a magnitude higher in price is huge. So what you want to do then is it changes your mindset. You say, well, every time it sells off like it did you know, over the last year, it's been down 50%. Well, I should be buying it because my expected future return has just gone up. Because let's say something's at 100 and you expect it to go to 500. So that goes up five times. If it's now, if it's fallen to 50 and it's going to go to 500, it's now going to go up 10 times. You make, you make double the amount of money. So you should be really happy to see these sell-offs over time because it means you can buy more cheap stuff and gives you a higher return for the future. Um, and that's why dollar cost averaging takes the stress of trading away and just says every month or every week or every quarter, I'm going to stick some money in and I don't care where the price is. because And I might rush my buys if I think it's really fallen or add a bit extra because it's a good opportunity. But you just look at the long-term trend and the way to look at these things, because if you look at the long-term trend on any normal chart, you go to trading view or something, they all look like this. So it doesn't, it's not easy to look at. You use what's called a logarithmic trend, where it changes the um, scale. And then you can see these beautiful long trends emerge. And Bitcoin fit perfectly. Amazon was the same. Google was the same. They're all the same. You just find this. And then when it starts getting down to the bottom of that trend, it's a really interesting place, unless something has fundamentally changed and that that particular token is 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 not as robust or it may be failing because of the community or the utility that it's offering but with with eth and uh, bitcoin it's pretty straightforward and then it takes all the stress away because what you're saying is i don't want to access my money for 10 years as opposed to well i'm going to buy and sell this and i'm going to buy a watch and you know i'm going to buy a holiday with this and and before you know it, you take too much risk because you can't afford your holiday and then you have another bet and then you've lost money and it's, it's a bloody shit show. What you should do is say, listen, I, I want to I be able to afford a great house in 10 years' time. So my route to this is by investing in these cryptocurrencies and I'll just do it over time and I won't even look at how much my money goes up and down. And that's what I do. I, don't, I just don't look at my P&L, my profit and loss. I just think, you know, can I put my, more money in? And because um, I'm just thinking it's a long-term trade. It doesn't matter. It's like, we don't look at our house price every day. <laughs> and like, has it gone up? Has it gone down? What, what do my neighbor sell for? It's like, that's stupid. You know, because you, you're in your house for five years, 
10 years. And so you think, okay, well, over time, hopefully it, it does okay. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's really sound advice because one of my favorite things to do is on either swing, like if it's extreme, is to go on Twitter because the memes and the tweets are just incredible. Like people are losing their minds one way or another. I mean, you know, when when Bitcoin was really going up, everyone was putting these laser eyes and counting every thousand in price. I'm like, please don't do this because <laughs> when this happens, bad things happen. Uh-huh. Um, I always say, when you think your shit smells of roses, you're going to get your face rubbed in it. And that was exactly <laughs> what happened, right? It collapsed. And the other one is, you know, it's like monkeys throwing poo at each other when the price is down. Everyone <laughs> hates each other. Everyone hates everything. Everyone's an idiot. It's all going to zero. Can't you see? It's ridiculous. But mm-hmm. that's what, it's human emotion, right? It's, 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 it's kind of an amazing thing to see it because it's all over Twitter. Right. And it, honestly, it gives me a lot more confidence in this space because, again, it comes down to the community and the community is extremely invested in it um, and very vigil. So I think it's, it's a huge indicator of its success. Yeah. And you need to step back from being sucked in to the extremes of the community. Mm-hmm. So if everyone's really bearish and they all hate each other and they're all picking on each other and the Bitcoin guys are picking on the ETH guys who are picking on the Solana guy, you know that it's probably somewhere near the low because everybody's losing their shit. Mm -hmm. And if everybody's like having laser eyes and saying (laughs) it's going to the moon, you probably want to hold off on your dollar cost averaging for a bit because people are over-enthusiastic. No. Yeah, totally agree. Um, This has been amazing. And again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your knowledge. Do you want to tell the listeners where they can um, follow you, support you, and then any projects you might be working on? Yeah, I think the easiest thing, I'm on Twitter a lot and I I engage with a lot of people. So at Raul, R-A-O-U-L-G-M-I. So find me there. Real Vision, we set up, because I'm so passionate about this, we set up Real Vision Crypto, which is free. There's you know stuff behind the paywall for finance. It's, it's not. It's actually not very expensive, and it's got the most amazing stuff in the world. But anybody's interested in crypto, realvisioncrypto.com. Just go there, sign up with your email, and that is a treasure trove of all of the most amazing um, people in the space. All of the learning you could ever want. I do a show every Friday. That's my journey. Like like you, I'm doing the same as you. I just interview people to say, well, I just want to learn from you. And so mine's called Raoul's Adventures in Crypto, comes out every Friday. So all you need to do is pop in your email and I promise you it'll change your life. And I can tell you my husband subscribes to all of that and he is the biggest fan of your content. So yeah, definitely go check it out, everybody. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. That's it for this week's episode of Chatting with Candice. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a five-star review. Did you know that you can actually do that more than once? So if it's been a while, you can actually do that again. And if you know anyone that would like this content, you could share it with a buddy, maybe two or three. And if you're watching, hit that like and subscribe. I'll see you next time.